Holy Spirit. I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus over the gathered congregation this morning, that our hearts would be purified and set apart to receive everything, Father, that you have to speak here to your children. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Now, oh, shoot, would you look at that? My iPad is dying. How am I going to... How am I going to give you my sermon? Oh, it's a good thing that I keep these right in the pulpit. So if you just give me a minute, I'm going to switch these out. Anybody know where these go? <clears throat> it doesn't work. The only thing that's going to give this bad boy life is this, isn't it? <laughs> or maybe... Um, You've been driving and you ran out of gas. Have you ever said, hey, I've got this half a bottle of iced tea. Let's just pour that in the tank until we get to the gas station. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> likewise, likewise, human beings can only thrive when they follow the way of life that God lays out before them. God's law, God's commandments, God's word is the only thing that will actually fit what we need to thrive and to flourish throughout our lives. His word is life-giving. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is how you have to think about obedience in the Christian life. You've probably picked up on the theme scriptures today. There's a way of life and death, a way of disobedience and obedience. And this is the way to think about the obedience that God calls us to in the Christian life. It's actually a call to live a full and happy life. Does anybody in here want to have a full and happy life? I know I do. I know I do. Look at the psalm. Actually, don't look at the psalm yet. You're going to look at the psalm in a minute. So you can get ready to look at the psalm. But I want to tell you, I want to say today that I have two proposals that I want to work through in the next few minutes. Number one is that we were designed to obey God's word. We were designed in the very core of our being to be creatures who are obedient to God's word. And the second proposal is that this, it's that all obedience is aimed at something beyond itself, which is communion with the father. All obedience is aimed at communion, say communion. With the Father. Those are my two proposals. So when you talk about obedience and disobedience, sin and salvation and all of these things, there's a lot of myths out there. And on the one hand, it's important that because God demands obedience, that he is some kind of heavy handed cop in the sky who's waiting for you to step out of line that he can hand you a ticket to send you right to hell. Okay, that's a popular myth that is out there. God demands obedience because he loves us and desires what is best for us. Now, on the other hand, it's important to dispel the myth that sin and disobedience are not a big deal to God, that they don't really matter all that much because of grace or that we shouldn't have to worry too much about obeying God's commands so long as we say we love him and we do good deeds to others. I also want to take that myth to court. Uh, Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let's start with the first proposal. We were designed to obey God's word, God's commands. Now you can get Psalm chapter 119. The psalm that we just recited together a moment ago. 
You'll find out why it's in red, the first verse later. (laughs) It says, happy are those whose way is blameless. Or some translations say, blessed are those whose way is blameless. The Hebrew, this is verse 1 of Psalm 19, the Hebrew actually says something like this, oh, the happiness of those who are blameless of way. You see, this is the design that I'm referring to. We were made with the capacity to choose disobedience or obedience. And the result is this. I came up with a little, I don't know if what it's called, a limerick or something. When we obey, we thrive in peace. When we disobey, we strive for peace. Okay. Those, those are the two options that the Lord puts before us. The way of flourishing and the way of perishing. Now think about this just for a minute and, and applying this to, to real life. So think about the last time you, you chose like a nasty backbiting response to someone. Or you were uh, slightly deceptive about something, just slightly deceptive. Or you, uh, you, you had to get the last word in on a Facebook argument. Or you forsook an opportunity to be with the Lord. Or you looked at pornography. Or you glutted yourself on a half gallon of ice cream. Think about how you felt afterwards. Didn't something just feel off? You didn't feel really very good, did you? There wasn't peace abiding in your soul. Now, on the contrary, maybe you can remember a moment when you felt prompted by the Lord's voice to buy someone in need a meal, or you turned off the TV, you got on your knees to spend time with Jesus, or you ended a relationship at work that was not with your spouse that was getting tacious, or you came to church every Sunday, but you felt peace. You knew you did the right thing, right? See, even people who, who don't know God have something in their conscience that kind of steers them in a general way towards following the way of righteousness. It brings peace, but there's also something in us that actually also very powerfully gravitates toward the wrong way, okay? And that's, that's the battle in Scripture between flesh and spirit. Now, C.S. Lewis, he was talking about the three parts of Christian morality, and he described it as, he said, think about an armada of ships getting aligned for a voyage, for a long voyage. And he said, there's really three issues when it comes to Christian morality. And you could think about it as an, a voyage of ships. One is that all of the ships individually must be an internal working order. The engines must be oiled well, gassed up. Everything has to be working uh, internally in each individual ship. The second thing is that uh, they must be formed in proper relation to one another or they're going to crash into each other and sink. Okay. Those are the first two things. And he's likened that onto a Christian morality, that there's something that needs to be set right in us as individuals so that we're at peace and walking in righteousness. And we also need to be at peace and have the right relationship with other people around us, formed in right relationship with other people. And he's making the point that uh, sin and disobedience, it gets in the way of those things. But when we choose the way of obedience and righteousness, those things are actually in good working order. But then he said this. Then he said this. There's a third issue. And he says, however well the fleet sailed, its voyage would be a failure if it were meant to reach New York and actually arrived at Pada. So what, what's the point he's making? He's saying there's a greater purpose or end towards which obeying God's commandments leads us. 
living a moral life, a life of character, a Christ life, life like life of obedience, there's a greater end to which it leads us. It brings us to our second point about communion. We were made for communion with God. I said this, my proposal was that all obedience is aimed at communion with the Father. Now you can see this in the, the pages of the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 with me, which is in your uh, bulletin. Or if you have a, a Bible, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're moving down uh, closer to the end of the passage. And God says this to the Israelites. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, saying my, the court's in session. Everyone, this is, a, this is a grand declaration coming from heaven. He says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your ring may live. He says, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life. Say that with me. He is your life. All of those things are grouped together. Loving God, obeying him and holding fast to him. But communion, right? Communion, even in the earliest days of Scripture, God wanted communion with his people, blessed communion, peaceful communion with his people. And so obedience and righteousness are held together with communion with our Heavenly Father. Jesus actually says something very, very simple. Those of you who have been in the Sunday morning class, you have seen all the parallels between and the things that Jesus says. He is one with and shares the identity of the God of Israel. And so you see this again. Let me just read this to you. You don't have it in your bulletin, but this is from John chapter 15 to his disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Then he says this, these things I have spoken to you be in you and your joy may be full. How does joy that is full sound to you? Sounds, sounds about good. Sounds pretty good right now, doesn't it? Especially the state of the world that we live in. Um, these days in February, what is the world coming? As abiding with me goes in t- obeying my word. And so Jesus himself echoes the words of God from Deuteronomy when he's speaking to his disciples. This is no new commandment. This is this has been there from the beginning of time to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, which means follow his ways, his life giving ways and obedience. You see, Jesus has given us his love freely. You did nothing to gain it. He didn't look on you and say, man, this one's love worthy and that one's not. This one's love worthy. No, he gives us his love as a gift of grace. But the way to abide in it and to enjoy it and to receive it deep in us is to obey him because he sets out a way of life for us, much of which in here. The work of his Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our consciences. You see, disobeying him, ignoring his word, it it makes us unable to abide in his love. It actually makes us unable because he's the, the, the father is like this with his arms open for communion. But when we walk in a path of disobedience, we actually go in like this. We can't we can't receive it. 
because our arms are, are holding on to other things. That's why when our lives are consumed with, with other things, we, we rarely sense his presence. Some of us have noticed we don't ever really sense the presence of the Lord in our lives. And you have to ask, why is that? It's not because God doesn't want to shower us with his presence. He does. It's that, it's that we're not in a posture to receive it. Because, you see, some of us, we're not enjoying deep intimacy with God because there are areas of our life that are not surrendered. There are areas of our life that aren't yet surrendered. So this is a question to ask ourselves, Lord, what is it? What is it? You know, so, somebody might say, I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling God's presence or blessing lately. I just, I don't feel like praying. I don't really care about reading his word. I don't, what's going on? And I would say, are you wholly surrendered? Are you, are you seeking to obey him with every fiber of your being? Are you, are you, is your heart possessed with love for him? And, you know, people will say things like, well, you know, I have my vices, but God's grace abounds, you know, and all that. His, his mercies are new every morning. I have my vices. Listen, friends, grace is, it's not a power that excuses sin. It's a power that frees us from sin. L- listen to what Paul says again in Romans chapter 6. He says, to, he's speaking to Christians who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. He says this, for sin will have no dominion over you. Say, no dominion. Since you are not under law, but under grace. He says you're in an even better covenant than the Israelites had with the law. You're under the covenant of grace, but grace is a power that will actually transform you to live a righteous life. John, beloved disciple of Jesus, he put it like this. He said, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He says that that's the test of if someone really knows God, do they keep his commandments? That it's that simple, right? Do they live a righteous life? It's not based on church attendance or getting water sprinkled on you when you were a baby. It's do you follow his commandments? Do you live a righteous life in communion with the father? He goes on and he says, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But. The one who keeps his word in him, true love of God is perfected. You see, God, loving love for God, is perfected when we live a life of obedience to him. Think about this. God is love because he loves us, because he sees the big picture view. He sees the long view that we don't see when we're engaging vices in the short term. He sees the long view, how it and becomes an infection and destroys and corrupts his beloved creatures. And so God hates sin and disobedience because he loves us. Not because he's up there like, oh, step out of line and see what I do to you. It's about his heart, his fatherly heart for the well-being of his children. Uh, there's a children's author named Jack Kent, and he wrote a book, uh, some of you ones might know the book, There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. Has anybody read that? Know that? Yeah. Um, in the book, uh, there's a little boy, and he, 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 I think he finds an egg. And it hatches. He hatches it in his room, and this little dragon. And he goes to tell his mom, and she says, "Oh, that don't be silly. Uh, that's that, there's no such thing as a dragon." And um, it begins to grow in his bedroom. And it begins to be noisy. It begins to outgrow the bedroom, and the mother keeps saying, "No." No, 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 there's no such 
a dragon. There's no such thing as dragons. It's not, it's not real. And uh, just totally in denial about it until the dragon becomes so big that it breaks through the house and it carries away the house on its back running down the street. It's a beautiful metaphor for Christians who need to admit, and it's all of us, the reality of the dragons in our lives. They might just be at the cracking egg stage. They might be growing fast. But the Lord wants us to slay the dragon before it gets too big. Before we know, before it's too late and it runs off with us. You see, all sin starts as a fleeting thought or a feeling of excitement stirring in our hearts. The thrill of a flirting with someone who doesn't belong to you. The, 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 the thrill of uh, partaking in uh, drugs and the buzz of drunkenness. The, it's just that initial, it's where it begins and, where, and it starts to grow like a dragon. And, 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 and Jesus says to us, cut it off, slay it quickly, get rid of it. Get rid of it, whatever it is. John Piper has this great quote that I love all the time. He says, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with Jesus. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in Jesus. If you've ever gone to, um, you've ever been really hungry and you went to a Chinese buffet and you kind of looked at the outside of the place and you were like, eh, around. But you go in and you're really hungry and you're like, Orange chicken, general so's, broccoli and pepper steak, and you just, Chinese donuts, and you layer it on, right? Because you're hungry, right? You need to be satisfied. And you just go for it, right? Four plates, if you're me. But if you're, if you've eaten, and you're full, and you walk into the same restaurant, you're indifferent. How sin has an allure, disobedience allures to us because we're not satisfied. We're not full of, of the presence of the Lord, that the feast that His goodness is, the feast of His salvation, the recognition of who He is to us and for us. And so we, we dive into the buffet and you never feel good afterwards. You always regret it. <laughs> for some of us growth in our spiritual life it could it could currently be hindered because there's an object that needs to be removed or a or behavior or a habit or an addiction a pattern you know if you say i've been praying more i've been reading the bible more i'm memorizing the weekly memory verse father cameron but you're, you're, you're not going to move forward if that thing is still there. You can, if you're driving a car and you come up against a brick wall, you can keep spinning the wheels and pressing on the gas, but until that wall's out of the way, you're not going to be able to go forward. So the question for us today is what are those things or what is that one thing in me that's hindering me from moving deeper to the love of God, into the love and presence of God? Is it bitterness, unresolved relationship issue, unforgiveness? Problem with anger, food, booze. What is it? What is it that's hindering? You see, God, he desires communion with us. He longs for it. James, the brother of Jesus says, do you not know that he yearns jealously for the spirit he has placed within you? He yearns for communion. 
communion with us. He yearns for us to be in his presence. But the thing is this, he cannot feed his presence and blessing to a heart that is feasting on that which does not give life. To a heart that, that's actually not really hungry for it because it's full, filled up with other stuff. Last week, um, I, remen- I, I mentioned uh, revival and I talked about some uh, prophetic stuff. Um, it's relevant to this conversation. It's actually very relevant, so I want to say a word about it. Um, I was t- thinking and praying, and I thought, what is revival? What is what is revival? And some, some people think, oh, it's when everybody goes crazy. I, I don't know what people think. I don't know what you think about it. But let me give you a definition based on um, some extensive reading and, and research of uh, the history of revivals in the church throughout history. Let me give you a definition that I wrote. I would say um, this is what revival is, and you'll see where I'm going with this um, when it comes to uh, life of obedience in a minute. My definition is this. Revival is a powerful, ongoing move of the Holy Spirit to bring many sinners to repent and turn to the love of God. To convict and renew the hearts of backslidden, sleepy Christians. To bring about obedience of life among God's people. To bring people into a deep intimacy with the person of Jesus. Often accompanied by the manifest presence of God through biblical preaching, through signs and wonders, and extended times of praise and worship. And it's also a drawing together of believers... From, from many different backgrounds and denominations whose hearts become united about the spread of the gospel and the advance of God's kingdom. I don't know about you, but that sounds awesome to me. The manifest presence of God, renewing the hearts of his people, waking up those who have been sleeping spiritually and setting them on fire with joy to spread the gospel. That's revival. You see, ultimately, though, revival, it's a dramatic transformation of human hearts. It's a dramatic transformation of human hearts. Richard Loveless, who is a longtime church history professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, in his, uh, in his masterpiece book on, on revival, he describes a model for revival like this. He says it's the expanding of God's kingdom in a liberating warfare against the forces of darkness in which the most important battleground is the hearts of men. An expanding of God's kingdom in a liberating warfare against the forces of darkness in which the most important battleground is the hearts of men. And this is precisely what we see Jesus addressing in the Sermon on the Mount today. The hearts of men. The hearts of men and women. Let's look at that for a minute before we close today. You see, this is so much about issues of the heart and where hearts are. This isn't sin management or behavioral therapy. This is about where our hearts are with the Lord. And Jesus knew that. So Jesus says this. I'm going to read just a few verses from it again because it's a good example. He says, you've heard said of old, he's quoting the law, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. So what's he saying? He's saying this. It's possible he says, great, you don't murder. I'm, you know, he's talking to the Pharisees and tribes. He says, great, you don't murder. I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I imagine him doing that. He says, I'm very proud of you. But guess what? You can keep all of the commandments and have your heart in the wrong place. You can do all the doings 
and your being can be in the wrong place. You see, Jesus is saying that the angry heart, it's the seed that leads to murder. The lustful heart is the seed that leads to adultery. That's why he puts things the way that he does. You see, Jesus is always challenging our external religious practice to make us see when and where our hearts are not in the right place, when they're not aligned with the heart of the Father. Not just to do this at us, but to draw us in, to align us with God's will, which is always the way of life and flourishing. You see, the Lord is more concerned about the transformation of our hearts than our ability to carry out long of good works. He's first and foremost concerned about the transformation of our hearts. Have we let in all the the behavior and the, the obedience and disobedience, all that stuff is just a signifier of where our hearts stand. That's just an external signifier of where our hearts stand. You see, friend, going back, friends, going back to our original idea, we were designed for happiness, for joy, to walk hand in hand with the Lord's presence. He is, he is holy and he is majestic and he, he hates sin and he will ju- come back to judge the living and the dead, but he's also tender hearted, slow to anger, the Bible says, abounding in steadfast love. That's his fatherly heart. He doesn't want anyone to perish or walk and choose the, the, the path of perishing or death. He wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth in his son Christ and to walk in the path of life. That's why Deut- in Deuteronomy he says those words, choose life. Choose life. That's God's word to all of us today. Choose life. Now, just as a closing thought, this is just so important. I want us just to remember, any, anytime, you, any, anytime I preach on uh, you know, obedience, my, my fear is always people will walk away is just saying, I've got to try harder and I've got to try to find more things that I can do to, to make God happy. But that, that's not how it works. If you have Christ in you, God is happy. He declares over you what he declared at Jesus' baptism. You're my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. So we have to remember that Christianity is not good advice, but good news. Everybody say good news, it's a, which is a proclamation, right? It's a news banner that says that, that flashes and says, look at the headline. The good news is this. Jesus Christ has died to save sinners. And when we unite ourselves to him by faith, we are, are, are robed with the beauty of his righteousness. And he wipes out our sin debt. And we come into union with him by his spirit coming to dwell in us. And we're saved. We're redeemed. You see, God has a claim on our lives and our obedience because God has acted on our behalf in Jesus said yes to him. Yes to him? Like this, the author of that great uh, 16th century work, Pilgrim's Progress. He said, if people see, if people really see that Christ has removed the fear of punishment from them by taking it into himself, they won't do whatever they want. They'll do whatever he wants. You see, it draws us uh, back to the cross of Calvary where we can gaze upon the, 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 the dying Savior and say, he did that for me. I owe him everything. He did that so that I could be saved, that I am redeemed, that I have been declared righteous. 
in the sight of a holy God. And, and from that, that place of clinging to the cross of Jesus, you are everything. My Savior, you shed your blood so that I didn't have to. You got what I deserved and I got what you deserved. Eternal life, adoption as a son or daughter. It's that love for him that will stir in our hearts, actually want to obey and delight in his will, as we say at the end of our confession, that we would actually delight in his will and find it to be the way of life. So don't walk away from this sermon today thinking, how can I add more obedience to my life? Huh. That's heavy. John, John the beloved disciples, he says his commands are not burdensome because our faith has overcome the world, because his spirit dwells in us and enables Don't walk away thinking, how can I add more obedience to my life? Instead, ask, how can I better fix the inward gaze of my soul upon Jesus? Righteous. Walk in communion with him and choose life. Let's pray. Lord, we turn that inward gaze of our soul to you right now. We invite you, Lord, to stir in our hearts about that one thing or those things that you've probably been speaking to many of us. I know I'm included in this group. Things that need to be let go of. So that our life with you deepens, Lord, because that is your desire is communion with us, Jesus. Father, that is your desire is communion with us. So, Lord, I just ask right now you'd enable us during this time of worship over these next few minutes uh, to just lay those things at your feet. Show us, Lord, bring to mind a word or phrase or, or show us a behavior, whatever it is that in our lives where we have not been choosing life and enable us by the convicting work of your Holy Spirit to lay it at your feet, to know that you've cleansed us of it and that by the work of your Spirit, we have the power to walk in victory, to choose life and to choose the life of joy, that the abundant life that you came to give us. Lord, it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.